So uh, we're excited to have Nicholas here this morning. So we wanted to uh, ask him a few questions before we got started, just so you can get to know a little bit about uh, the institution. So Nicholas, thanks for being here. And uh, yes, <laughs> it is, it is. Anyone who needs to cry after or during Nicholas's message can go downstairs to the cry room, adults as well. Uh, so what is uh, unique about Indianapolis Theological Seminary? Well, the first thing that's unique about Indianapolis Theological Seminary is that it's in Indianapolis, <laughs> right? So we, are, we, we chose that name because we're serious about Indianapolis and central Indiana, and most of our, uh, not most, uh, 25% of our curriculum, uh, the credits are earned through local church internships. So people like Hunter and others can stay embedded in their local churches if they're fruitful there, serve there, learn from the elders and the pastoral staff while getting a seminary education. Uh, Most seminaries historically are located in various locations throughout the country, and students have to relocate to go there, and they're self-contained. They learn everything they need to learn right there on the campus. Uh, And that's that's a great experience. That's how I went to seminary. It was a great experience for me. However, what that means is places like Indianapolis, Muncie, Evansville, places like that where there isn't a seminary, students have to leave their ministry context where they might be fruitful. Uh, I'm sure you are fruitful. I didn't mean to say you might not be. Where the students are fruitful, but also where the pastoral staff want to continue to disciple them, take them out of those locations, put them somewhere else. They might come back, but in the interim, the church has moved on, they've moved on, they've changed, and these kinds of things. Uh, and so what we're able to do is keep students embedded in their local church and ministry contexts, continue to learn in those contexts, and get seminary classes at the same time. That's not a knock on those other schools. Like I said, I benefited from that, uh, and to this day, I still recommend relocating for some students if that's right for them or whatever capacity. But for those who want to stay local, stay in their congregations, be discipled by the people in their congregation while getting this theological education, well, then ITS is unique in that way. Awesome. So what about that model in particular? So, I mean, so that, that's the model that I, I kind of went through as well, uh, a little bit differently, but want to see happen. So I'm super excited about that model. Uh, why is that important for Central Indiana? Yeah, one, to keep them local like that. But then also because uh, theological education is not just reading books and learning all the right answers. It's learning how to practically apply them in your unique context, which in this case is Muncie or wherever uh, a student comes from. Uh, again, when I went to seminary, I learned, 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 books, 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 library, class, chapel, and then did an internship afterwards uh, in, a, in another city. And the whole time I was thinking, man, this internship is creating certain questions that had I had those questions and wherewithal at the beginning of my theological education, uh, that, that different practical angle coming at the theology would have been really fruitful. So that's the idea that the students are in these internships while they study at ITS and therefore makes their theological training um, have more hands and feet, as it were. Yeah, Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. All right, so uh, a surprise question. I'm ready. Get to know you question. Okay. So uh, I won't take credit for this question. Nate kind of tipped me off to this question. So we need to know the proper way to cook a bratwurst. The proper way to cook a broadverst. Um, This this is a good question. I always have to call my friend Roger right before I do it. Uh, You get the cheapest beer you can find, and you bring it to a boil, uh, and then you drop the broadverst in there for, I think, 20 to 25 minutes. 
uh, and then you bring them out and you sear them on a, uh, on a grill that's already hot for just like three or four minutes, and then you put onions and sharp mustard on it bun, on a nice thick bun, and uh, if you haven't done it, try it, it's wonderful, crispy and juicy. All right, well, if you are interested in learning more about Indianapolis Theological Seminary, you can uh, talk to us after the service, we're going to have some, we're not going to have bratwurst. Though maybe mm, we should you've have. disappointed everybody. Uh, but we are going to have uh, some Stampede lunch to talk the cry together room. about um, ITS and uh, get to know Dr. Piotrowski more. So if you're interested in that, talk to me after the service uh, or, uh, you know, grab me at some point so that we can uh, add you to the list for that. So, uh, but we're going to hear from God's word now. So, Amen. Amen. thanks. Thank you. Nicholas. Thank you. Well, I'm deeply grateful to be able to be here today and to open God's word with God's privilege. There's no greater privilege. Would you pray with me one more time? Almighty God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow now before your word, eager to hear what you would say to us through your word. May I decrease, may you increase, and would you open up the ears of these people, and open up their hearts to receive your word, that they may believe it and eager to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst. Call me Ishmael. There once was a boy named Eustace, and he almost deserved it. Authors think deeply about their first sentences as a way to wink at the readers and indicate in some way how the story might go and how the story might end. There's no better, no more widely read, no more famous first sentence than the book that is the most widely read book in all the world, the Christian Bible, which begins, as you know, in Genesis 1-1 with the famous line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth together. God created the heavens and the earth together. Now, if you're an avid Bible reader, you know it doesn't say together that God created the heavens and the earth together, just that he created the heavens and the earth. But is that not the sense? Is that not the sense in the first two chapters of Genesis? That when God makes the heavens his abode and the earth the abode of humanity, they are linked together. Because Adam and Eve and God himself co-inhabit the Garden of Eden. They are there together. They walk together. They talk together. They know one another. God, who creates everything, then hands over to Adam and Eve the responsibility of stewarding the earth and expanding the bounds of the Garden of Eden. They do this so that Eden, I'm sorry, that heaven can pervade the earth all the more. It is as though, even though Genesis 1 and 2 don't say this, nonetheless, it is as though the earth itself is a temple, a holy sanctuary, because that's what sanctuaries are. They're places where the divine and the human co-inhabit, and that's why they're so rare. But the Garden of Eden is just that. It's an arboreal temple, a garden sanctuary, where Adam and Eve are together. Yet, as you know, as the story goes, 
Adam and Eve disobey the law of God. They sin, they fall from God's good graces. And as it were, heaven and earth are ripped apart. Heaven and earth are ripped apart. Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden. They're expelled from the presence of God. Now they have to work by the sweat of their brow. And there's all kinds of divisions, both between themselves, between other humans, between them and creation, and between them and God. And the rest of the Bible, then, is an exercise in putting heaven and earth back together. Thus, we consider today Revelation 21, the end of of the story. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. Let me read to you just a few verses, and then we'll dig in for more detail. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. There it is. The end of the story. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, is writing. He's He's on an island called Patmos, And Jesus himself has given him visions of the past, the present, and the future. And thinking now about the future, this is what John writes. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The book of Revelation has been a controversial book throughout church history. There are as many interpretations of the book of Revelation as there are fingers and toes in this room. And this is why people like to stay away from it. They're intimidated by it. Who knows if I'll cross somebody with my interpretation or or get into some kind of debate or just cause confusion because it can be a complicated book. I think one of the reasons it seems so complicated is because it seems like it's so future-oriented. We think about the Old Testament and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They talk about the past. They talk about the lead-up to Jesus' life and Jesus' life. And then the letters of Paul and Peter, they're, they're kind of for today, right? But Revelation, that's all future stuff. It's all future stuff. And who knows the future? So I don't want to wrangle over it, and I don't want to get confused by it. So just kind of intimidated by it and leave it alone. But truth be told... Revelation is about the past, present, and future. It's not only about the future. And so that's going to be our outline for today. Thinking about what this passage tells us about the past, what our past can inform, therefore, about the present, and therefore give us hope for the future. Let's begin with the past. As I've already mentioned, the Garden of Eden was an arboreal garden temple where God and humanity are together. And insofar that humanity falls out of the good graces with God because of our disobedience and sinfulness, therefore the rest of the Bible is about putting heaven and earth back together. Here we have, at the end of the scriptures, the second to last chapter in the Bible, and heaven and earth have come back together. John sees the new creation. 
Sometimes you might think, well, what is, what is life like after death? And there are some common caricatures that we will be disembodied, kind of like angelic figures, and we'll all be given imaginary harps, and we'll float around on clouds. You seen that stereotype? Just forget about that. Just forget about that. The new creation will be a reboot of the Garden of Eden. Only instead of simply a garden, it will be a garden city. A city, as it were, with lush garden places. Now, why have we moved from garden to city? Well, because throughout the history of humanity, we ourselves have contributed to the creation of culture. Here's what I mean by that. Look at Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28. So after God creates the heavens and the earth together, and then he creates humanity in his image, the only creature to be called in God's image, he says this, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is called the cultural mandate. In short, God is telling Adam and Eve to create culture. God himself made all the material of the universe and then started separating day from night, sky from land, water from land, organizing it and then filling it with birds and fish and so forth. So now he turns to Adam and Eve and he says, you do the same thing. You do the same thing. You now fill, you organize, you create. In short, you, humanity, are now in charge of turning this garden into a more habitable environment for human thriving. And only creatures made in God's image are able to do that, to create culture, technology and ideas that we pass on from generation to generation so those technologies and ideas can evolve and grow for more human thriving. Here's what I mean. If I walk in front of the speaker, will it like go off or anything? Feedback? No? Okay. So who knows? Here we go. Here I come, right? So several years ago, uh, several years ago, this is before the pandemic, my sons and I went to see, uh, I forget what it was called, I think it was just called Wales at the IMAX, at the IMAX theater down next to, to Victory Field. And I was, I was struck. I mean, it was amazing the way these whales eat. You know, they're the largest creatures on earth, and they eat small fish and krill. Krill are like shrimp, only they're smaller than shrimp. Shrimp is small, that's why they're called shrimp. Krill are even smaller, right? So here you have the largest creatures on earth eating the smallest creatures in order to sustain themselves, which means they have to eat a lot of it, right? So how does a large animal like that fill itself with the smallest animals in the ocean? Here's what they do. They communicate with each other by sounds kind of like yawning and clicking through the water over hundreds of miles to communicate with each other when they have found a school of fish, when one of them has found a school of fish. And the others know what those sounds mean, and so they all gather together where the fish and the krill are located. And then they swim in circles underneath the school or the swarm, blowing air bubbles out of their blowholes to small bubbles, to create a wall, a tunnel of bubbles 
trapping the fish and krill inside. They can't get out because of the air bubbles surrounding them. And so then one of them will swim under, come up underneath the fish and the krill, get all of it or most of it in its mouth, close it, and eat it all in one fell swoop. And then they'll do it again, and the next one will come up from underneath. And I just, I was blown away by the sophistication of how they communicated with each other to fill their bellies with fish. But that is nothing compared to paper and pencil. That is nothing compared to what five-year-olds learn to do, how to read. You see, that's just sound saying, I found food, let's get food, right? And other animals, I found a cute one, you stay away, right? So those are the concerns of the animal kingdom. But to harvest wood and to create paper and put black marks on it so that you can communicate ideas to somebody else and pass those on from generation to generation, only creatures made in God's image are able to do that or to create fire, or to create lights, to control the atmosphere of a space like a room, or opera. Have you ever thought about opera? Whether you like opera or not, you know what it is. There's no survival significance to opera. It's just something human beings create because they have this creative capacity in themselves, which is a reflection of the image of God. So every single human being is called to be, therefore, a culture creator, to contribute to the thriving of humanity to the glory of God, which even whales and beavers and butterflies simply do not do, only those created in God's image. Now, you may say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not an architect. I can't sing a cappella like you, Josh. I would be terrified to try that in front of people. Um, you know, I don't write operas or songs. I'm, I'm not creative. And I say, yes, you are. You actually are. Every time you make, let's just say, something as simple as a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you are doing something in the image of God that no other creature is able to do. I mean, think about what's going on when you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You're taking the peanut butter, which used to be in a bean form somewhere else, harvested by somebody else, transported over a long distance, smashed up, combined with oils and sugars and these kinds of things, and then jarred and put in a grocery store. And then you use this cultural artifact called money that no other creatures use to barter for that, and now you own it. And then you take the jelly, which again is grown by somebody else, somewhere else, transported over a long distance, and transformed into a a jelly And then you use a knife, again, a knife. No other creatures use, only those made in God's image, to put them together on bread, which used to be growing in a field somewhere else, harvested by somebody else at some other time and transported over to you. All those things have to come together just to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Just to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Which means when you make breakfast, when you make lunch, when you make dinner, when you do the simplest things in life, You are acting out your creative capacities in the image of God that no other creatures have. Or think about your work. What do you do at your work? You don't? (laughs) What do other people do at their works? Are they electricians? Well, 
You mow lawns. You see, somebody needs their, their lawn mowed. You are contributing to the human thriving by the skill that you have in mowing lawns. And then you get paid for it, right? And so you've done a service for them, and they reward you for it. You fix cars? Someone needs their car fixed. Are you a lawyer? People need lawyer uh, legal representation. Are you a teacher? People need to be educated. You see, whatever you do in your day-to-day job, you are contributing to the human thriving of others. Even in our recreation, we're creative. Has anybody ever done the night ride down in, down in Indianapolis? No one's ever done the... No, no, no. Well, if that's, if that's fun for you, that counts as recreation, yeah. Well, the night ride used to be... It used to be a ride where people got on their bicycles and they, they lit up their bicycles. They, the police blocked off some streets and you ride through it. Anyway, it's been canceled, of course, because of the pandemic the last few years. But my sons and I, we would not be denied. We enjoyed this so much that we pick a night out of the year. We chart a course through the neighborhood and, and down to the, the, the store so they can get some cookies out of it, right? Uh, we light up our bikes and, and we ride around and we survive, right? But just think about this. No other creature paves roads, brings metal and gears and rubber together just so they can frolic under the stars, just so we can have fun. So in our homes, in our jobs, in our recreation, it is irresistible. In other words, we can't not live out our creative capacities to contribute to ours and other thriving in God's creation. And this is the cultural mandate. This is the calling of every human being. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. There's always a catch. There is a thing called domestic violence. So in our homes, we also use those creative capacities to harm others. There is a thing called fraud. So in our jobs, we take those jobs as opportunities to cheat others. Or we use our creative capacities to make illegal drugs or websites that harm people or whatever it might be. And in our recreation, we also find our games to be ways that we can sanitize and hide our sinfulness. And so we have this two-pronged reality going on. One, we're made in the image of God where we can use our creative gifts to glorify God and help others, like by mowing lawns. And we can also use our creative capacities to glorify ourselves and cheat and harm others. And so the result is that we don't live in a Garden of Eden, (laughs) right? The creative order is out of control. We should be able to well, it used to say up there with Genesis 128, control and have dominion, have control over all things. But we don't. Case in point, cancer, COVID-19, uh, hurricanes, you know, the, 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 the created order is out of control. And we're not able to sustain our creative capacities in God's image to steward the earth. However, now comes the good news again. God will not leave his creation to be destroyed by his image bearers. Therefore, he sent a new man, 
the second man, the last man, the man Jesus Christ. Who unlike the first man and every other man and woman, he lived a perfect life from beginning to end, from birth throughout his life. Never violated the law of God. Never mistrusted God. Never deceived anybody else. Never had an impure thought or an impure motive. He lived a perfect life. Yet, he was crucified. He died. Not for his own sins, because he had no sin, but for the sins of all his people who would ever repent and put their trust in him. So that through the new man, God can reclaim creation for his namesake and take those sinful, creative ability misusing people to bring them back to him to now reuse our creative capacities to bless others and glorify God in our homes, in our jobs, and in our spare time. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who's been united to Jesus Christ, forgiven by his sins, and by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, been given a new power to live in a new way to the glory of God and the good of others. Perfectly? No. But better than we were. And therein lies the grace of God. Thereby, actually reclaiming Eden as a place on earth. Here's what I mean by that. In 1 Kings chapter 10, if we can get that one up there, we have this brief account of King Solomon. Yeah, there he is, right? Verse 24. Uh, I'll read verse 23 also. 23, 24, and we got up there 25. 23, 24, 25. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver, gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. What's the point here? What do you know about Solomon? Solomon is a man of wisdom. He's a man of peace. He never went to war, but most importantly, he built the temple. He built Israel's temple. And what, and you may say, I, I don't really think about temples. What, what does that have to do with me? Well, in Jewish thought, especially in Solomon's day and in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, so it should be our thought too, but <clears throat> the temple was the abode of God. It was the place where heaven and earth are actually reunited. Despite the sin and heaven and earth being ripped apart in the Garden of Eden, eventually Solomon comes along and builds a temple where in the most holy place, that is to say behind the sac- a sacred veil that nobody could pass but once a year, God lives. In other words, God who lives in heaven, nonetheless, is living on earth. What that means, therefore, is the temple is actually the place where heaven and earth are reunited just in that one space, the most holy place. And the author of 1 Kings is telling us that because someone has reconnected heaven and earth, the kings and queens of the earth now come to that place bringing things like presents, silver, gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, and so forth. Why? Because those are the artifacts of culture creation. You see, it's human beings who make presents for one another, 
who use gold and silver as precious presents, who domesticate horses and mules. And so the point the author is making here is a little piece of the Garden of Eden has been reestablished because those sinful kings are coming to the king of Israel to bring their tributes, their culture-making capacities in worship of the true and living God. Well, as the story goes on, you likely know Israel loses its temple until the man Jesus comes, who I've already mentioned. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And listen to what Jesus says. These are his last words in the Gospel of Matthew. After he's lived that sinless life, gone to die on the cross, and has been raised back to life, he says to his followers, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Just think about that for a minute. We just read in Genesis 1.28 that Adam has had to have dominion in heaven and on earth. Now Jesus is saying, I've reclaimed that. That's mine. It's an audacious statement. Heaven above, where God lives and the angels live, belongs to me. Earth beneath, with all the kings and all their presumed authority, they're mine. Heaven and earth belongs to me. All authority belongs to me. You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That language right there, I am with you always, is the language that God uses in the Old Testament to give confidence to his people, to do their mission. Here Jesus is drawing upon the language of God to speak to his people. Conclusion, Jesus is God, making this promise to his people, I am with you, which means... Here's my interpretation. Right. Wrangle with me about it after, afterwards. Glad to talk more. Jesus is invoking the language of the temple in the Garden of Eden, where God is with his people in the garden, in the temple. And the way people used to show their tribute and bring worship to God was by what? Coming to the temple. Now the temple will come out to you. You are the temple of God. You are bricks, you are stones in the temple of God. Jesus is with us by his spirit, making us, therefore, a holy sanctuary. However, not like the one with bricks and mortars, flesh and bone. Hands and feet that can go places. So instead of coming to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of God is going out into all the nations. Not the least of which, Muncie, Indiana, which no one had ever heard of when Jesus said these words. So far has the temple of God expanded outward. Training people to do what? Hear the things that Jesus taught. Make them disciples. Teach them the things that I taught you so that you can reclaim fully the image of God and be culture creators for the glory of God and the good of others. And tell others how to do that as well. And here's the upshot. When you evangelize somebody, when you tell somebody the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you're not just helping them get them out of hell, which is true, and that's very good. You're also commissioning them to be as human as possible. Now, I, now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying unbelievers are less human. But there's a calling on humanity 
to live for the glory of God and the good of others, not their own glory and their own selfishness. So when we turn people to live for the glory of God and the good of others in their culture-creating capacities, we're recommissioning them for their original intent of humanity. That's right. That's what I meant by that. And quite frankly, in an age with great despair, drug use, suicide, people need a little hope. They need to be told, listen, you weren't haphazardly and accidentally made by the universe. You're not just temporary collection of stardust. You're a human being made in the image of God with capacities like no other creature. And you can use them for what you were given them for God's glory and the good of others in reconciliation with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I thought we were talking about Revelation. <laughs> we are. Go back to Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. If the Garden of Eden was a temple in its location, Solomon's temple was a temple in its location, the Christian movement is a temple in wherever it goes, what John is saying here is now all creation has been enveloped by the presence of God. There is no temple to go to because everything is a temple. The presence of God is everywhere, and so are his people. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamb. The lamb there is Jesus. In its light, the nations walk. Here we go. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 26. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations. What John is saying here is, the cultural goods and productivity of human history will be brought into the city of God and laid before the feet of King Jesus as a tribute of worship to him. In other words, the things we do in this life for the glory of God and the good of others have an eternal impact because through our culture creation, we contribute to the structure of heaven. Because it's not, a, it's not a garden anymore. It's now a city. To put it another way, I think there will be airplanes in heaven. I don't think there will be handguns. That's not a statement about handguns right now. That's a statement about what handguns do. They kill. We're not going to kill. You follow me? But the creation will still be large, and we'll still be finite, which means we've got to get somewhere, we'll still have that. There will still be poetry. There will still be opera. Praise God, I think there will still be baseball and dogs. I, I like baseball. I love my, I like my dog. I love everybody's dog. And we will not use them, verse 27, for detestable and false things. You understand? I mean, you don't have to think long in your own life, nationally or internationally, on every scale these days, to think about detestable and false and unclean things. 
make tanks and run them through countries. We make drugs and push them through neighborhoods. All kinds of things that result in human suffering made by us. It will not be there in the new creation. Those things, it says, will be left outside the gate. Outside the gate. The gates will never be shut, but what will not come in is, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter into it. The good things that you make and contribute to society in this life somehow continue on. In 1 Corinthians 15, is that one available? 1 Corinthians 15, 58, there it is. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in the Bible focused on the resurrection of Jesus. 58 verses, this is the last verse. And you would expect, as you read through 1 Corinthians 15, that it would end with, you know, this, this doxology of praise to God, or therefore death is defeated, or, or something like that, hallelujah. It ends with this. It's really curious to me. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He thinks about the resurrection of Jesus in the past and then says, therefore, because Jesus is raised, heaven is secure. Therefore, what you do between now and heaven is never in vain. It's never pointless. The car mechanic, the mowing of the lawn, the teaching in school, the practicing law, whatever you do, if it's to the glory of God and the good of others, Jesus says, I can use that. It will contribute little by little to the building of society and culture that will eventuate in a city where nothing is unclean Everything is true, and nothing is detestable. You see, back in Genesis 1, God creates the world, hands it over to humanity, and says, build, make, have dominion. Jesus reclaims that through his teaching and employing his people to good ends, so that in the end, that's what we'll have. A culture made by human image bearers in the creation made by God to his glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm the president of seminary. What is a seminary? Seminary is a place where people train for Christian ministry. Pastors, missionaries, counselors, evangelists, you name it, we want to train you for that. So obviously, I think everyone should go to seminary. And I invite you to learn more about what we do. However, God doesn't call everybody to be pastors, missionaries, counselors, and so forth. But that doesn't mean you're not serving the Lord. If you, in your homes, your job, and your recreation, use your creative capacities to glorify God and serve your fellow humanity, you are living out the original cultural mandate in the presence of God, buying into a system, paying into a system that will pay out in the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth, in the presence of God. He's not just going to scrap the things you've done. They contribute little by little to the betterment of the creation, to the glory of God, and the good of others. Now, you're still welcome to study with me. That's cool, though. Uh, If you're an unbeliever here today, somebody invited you, or maybe you've been coming for a while and just never closed with Jesus. I wonder what this sounds like to you. 
Haven't these utopian dreams caused real damage in the past? I mean, what worldview, philosophy, uh, religion doesn't have a utopian vision, you know, where everything's going to be pie in the sky someday? And they're either naive on the one hand or dangerous on the other. And I would conclude by saying, yes, this is a utopian vision. Utopian meaning all will be good in the end. I mean, what's the alternative? A worldview that ends in a great cacophony, a great, great destruction of the universe. And, uh, you know, Leslie Paul, the philosopher, not the guitar manufacturer, said, <laughs> said life is nothing more than a match struck in the dark. Is that the way you think of your life? You're temporarily aflame, but, you know, when your matchstick burns out, you came from the nothing, you'll go to the nothing. And everything you do in between, good or unjust, right, righteous or cruel, doesn't matter, as long as I can get away with it. All the toys I've accumulated, I've got to give somebody else, and that somebody else might be a fool. I mean, is, is that really the extent of what we can say about the meaning of life? Or can we say that indeed God, through his creative power, made us and made us for a purpose, and he will redeem that purpose in the end? And while it may sound utopian, it's not naive. Because every religion worldview has some kind of vision of the future. It's either bad or good. But here's what Christianity has, an anchor in history. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in the past, we therefore have an historic reality that gives us confidence that he can do it again. In other words, raise us and reclaim the creation. It's not just wishful thinking that we come up with one day. We look to the past, we say because God raised Jesus, he can raise us. Because there's an intent for creation, he can reach that goal of creation, indeed, even through us. And so if you're an unbeliever, I simply invite you to consider what you think is the meaning of your life. Would you not rather join in the temple presence of God with the people of Jesus, giving redemption, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, adoption into his family, and live out your original created purpose by giving glory to God and helping others in everything you do. And if you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, then you can say with confidence, Revelation 22, one more time, verse 27, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. This is what you want more than anything else. The Lamb of God, Jesus himself, has a book with names in it of people who are incorporated into him through whom he is using their feeble and always imperfect culture creation for his glory and the good of others to the end that someday he will reclaim heaven and earth entirely when he returns and grants eternal life to those whose name is in that book. So whether it's A Tale of Two Cities, Moby Dick, or The Chronicles of Narnia, authors hint at the very beginning where we're going. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth together. They've been ripped apart by sin, but Jesus is putting them back together through his people. That we give him glory. And again, if you're an unbeliever, you're invited into that new humanity in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do give you praise. We give you thanks that you've given us hope. That history is not just one thing after another, but it's going somewhere under your providence for your glory and indeed for our good. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, for your atoning death and your resurrection. We give you thanks, Holy Spirit, for ears that hear and eyes that see. I pray, Lord, that you would mobilize this church now to live out their homes, their jobs, their evangelism, their recreation, every breath to your glory and the good of others. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen. Amen.